I've read and interviewed a lot of authors who have written a lot of books. And one of the things that I always find is that they didn't live it. They just read about it. Old dogs should be able to learn new tricks. Over 50, it definitely appears that if you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. If you don't know who you are, how the fuck do you figure out what the match is between who you are and how you live in this world? Everybody has, has different labels. Often by 30, it's a role. I am a father. I Got am it. a mother. I am a school teacher. Those sorts of things. But it I think about my age all the time. And I fight it and I work out and I'm always busy. But hearing what's possible based on the research you did just was like, I was like, kind of, it's kind of, it was amazing. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, for organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. We've got a man my age, Stephen Kotler, who studies flow. He's basically a flow scientist. He's an never, old man. Yeah, an old man. But Kotler is kind of defining, I mean, defying age. He became a park skier at that age. What that means is he does, he jumps, he does flips, he does all kinds of crazy shit. He was like, that, that sport, you're done at 35. And he was like, well, let me see what I can do. He's written a bunch of nonfiction books. Abundance, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, The Art of Impossible. He's, he is fascinated with performance. And he's fascinated with the notion of flow. And how, it get, how you can do things you didn't think you could do. And part of it's incremental progress. He talks about, in our country, growing old, staying rad. He literally put his own body to the test. He was like, let me see if I can apply all these lessons I've studied, all these, all the science I've studied. Let me see if I can apply it to myself in real time, doing something people say is impossible, which is trick skiing, park skiing, doing dangerous stunts on skis, you know, with a guy who's an expert. And let me see if I can actually surprise myself and get into flow and I, I gotta be honest the book's fascinating the book is fascinating he's fascinating he's given several talks and when you actually go down the rabbit hole of what flow is and how you can generate flow there are techniques where you can get yourself into the zone where you can get yourself into a situation where you actually shut your brain down they used to think you use more of your brain it may be that you actually stop thinking and, you know, what the Buddhists say is, it takes over. It takes over. Like when I do Kung Fu. Oh. I'm saying, dude, if I'm going to fight you, and by you I mean you and your group, like you come at me, if it's one-on-one, I'm going to do my shit. You know what I'm saying? Jesus. I know, but I'm going to do my shit. I'm going to surprise you, okay? And know that I'm going to surprise you, Okay. But if you come at me with four or five of your guys, 
I'm going to let it take over. I'm going to let it take over. Okay? Can you stop? What? I'm just saying that I'm going to stop thinking and I'm going to start moving yeah. with extreme prejudice. But this is not about Kung Fu. No. I mean, it is. It's about Kung Fu mindset. Okay? That's flow. That's the zone. Stephen Kotler is a master at this. He studied it. He's applied it to his own life. Nar Country is the book about that experience. And we had a great podcast. So please enjoy Stephen Kotler on The Brian Callen Show. Stephen Kotler, welcome. I'm a fan. I read Nar Country, which we're going to talk about. Abundance, The Art of Impossible. But you've read, well, you've written all the books. You've written like 17 books. It's obnoxious, actually. It's 14. I'm, I'm 14. not done till I have a shelf, though. Dude. Like, I want a full shelf. And I'm talking about like in one of those old school. It's an outrage. Big libraries. Well, it's West a, of Jesus. Uh, there's second a bu- all one. There are a bunch, just a bunch of books I have to read now because, but I've listened to your lectures and what I got, what I was really pumped about was that I've interviewed a lot of people and they do a lot of research and they do a lot of primary research. They do a lot of secondary research and they write a book. Could be a book about whatever it might be, and then they have a nifty title. You have been studying flow and peak performance aging and everything else forever, and now you finally put it to the test in such an extreme way. Like the shit you were talking about as I'm reading this stuff, you learn how to park ski. And if you don't know what park skiing is, it's that trick shit that you do when you jump in the air and twirl, and it's the most dangerous thing. And you did it at 53, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I did and that's, you gotta, you're a, I kept reading, I go, this guy's a fucking nut. Like, I always think of myself as crazy, and then I read about somebody who is, makes me feel like I'm a Boy Scout. So, congratulations on being alive. <laughs> it was such an interesting book in that sense. And I just appreciate that you were willing to fucking put your words to the test. You basically, you've been talking about this, and you go, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna be the most extreme example and prove that this actually works. It's interesting, because usually the experiments on myself come first, yeah. and I just don't talk about them, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I usually always start there, because otherwise I'm just not comfortable enough there that I'm going to be able to talk about it in any learned way. Yeah. Like, it can't be that removed from me. Otherwise, I'm not a talented enough writer to pull it off. I, whatever it is, I just usually keep the experiments out of it. Mm. And especially like, I've been doing this a very long time, but like guys like Tim Ferriss came along and the experiments were sort of their thing. And I was like, okay, that's their thing. I've been doing the same thing, but whatever. That'll be their thing. But it was fun to actually like... Well, Tim does stuff, but let's be honest. Hey, can you close that just in case there's... Tim will experiment on his own body, but there's a big difference. Like Hemingway did a lot of stuff, right? Hemingway drove an ambulance in the Spanish-American War, I think, and various stuff. And it's all good and maybe did some boxing, jumped around a ring a little bit, and then maybe did some bullfighting, but not really. Like, I think there's a big difference. I actually was racking my brain to find who had done something that required this kind of physical exertion, this kind of wear and tear, and this kind of risk. And I actually don't, I came up short. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I don't think of it that way. Part of it is, after spending so much time around professional action and adventure sport athletes, I see what they do, and I think, oh, my God, I can't go near that. That's that's insane to me. So yeah. I don't even rate on the scale compared to the folks I know and what, do. You know, what they do. But Sometimes. You, well, but 
you got to add in the fact that these people you're talking about, you're talking about the X Games a lot in the book. And here's, here's my theory on it. And you touch on it. Here's another thing you did in the book I haven't heard about. You talked about, you brought it up many times in the book, getting punched in the arm by jocks. <laughs> Basically proven that you're not a pussy. A lot. Of, so the book is about peak performance aging. And one of the things that came out of adult development, right, which is the field of how do we grow up. And this was mostly George Valiant's work, who was the last caretaker of the Harvard. There are two studies in Boston, 100-year studies of a of adult development. One was done on Harvard graduates and one was done, they went, oh wow, those are all rich Harvard graduates, so let's redo it on just working class Boston folks. George ended up as the last caretaker of that information and one of the things he discovered is there are gateways in adult development, right? Like there's all kinds of really neat stuff that we've learned that like new kinds of intelligence and wisdom and empathy and creativity that come online in your 50s, but only if you pass through these thresholds. And the first one is the threshold of identity by age 30. And by 40, it's match fit, which is an economics term for there's a tight fit between who you are and your strengths and your values and how you like to live and what you do for a living or what you do with the bulk of your time. But by 50, it's forgiveness. You have to forgive those folks who have done you wrong and forgive yourself. And most of that stuff I had worked through, but as I didn't get along with the jocks as a kid, and I lost a lot of fights over a long period of time, and that never really, like it just wasn't, it was hard to put down. It never quite went away. And I, one of the reasons I came up with this crazy park scan quest was maybe if I tried to turn myself into one of the jocks, if I really like walked a mile in their moccasins kind of thing, maybe that, I didn't have any other ideas. Right? I was like, I don't know if this is going to work, but nothing else has worked. Let's try this. And it was one of the, one of the things I, that I embarked on the quest for. It was a little extra added motivation for sure. It was sure. gutsy, bro. It was so gutsy, though, because that's, a fuck, that's dicey territory to start talking about how you were picked on as a kid and oh. then seeing if it works. But it made, to me, all the sense in the world. I also go, wanted to write a book about, like shit that men deal with all the time yes. and don't ever talk about right. don't and especially our generation we're the same age where like you don't complain you don't you, cry I, yeah i grew up in a world where like men didn't have emotions at all the most rebellious thing in the world you could be and my like, joke is that hug give somebody a hug <laughs> in the 70s and 80s as a man <laughs> give somebody give another man a hug what? Yeah. yeah like my yeah. father always considered th he talked to his buddy who was seeing a therapist he goes he's seeing a fucking therapist he needs Therapy. <laughs> like, if I ever cried, are you kidding? You'd be like, what are you, a leftist? What the fuck's going on? <laughs> exactly. So we did. We grew up. Yeah, no, we, so you grew up in this world where you couldn't have a mo You couldn't have any of those things. And it was sort of, yeah, it was just a way to see if I could settle that score. But I really wanted to talk about a lot of the heavy, like, in a fun way. I wanted to talk about some of the shame issues and, like, just some of the masculinity shit that men carry around and nobody especially today you really can't talk because the last thing anyone wants to hear is a man talking about like male you like, guys have no. had your time shut <laughs> yeah, up like shut the fuck you up you don't matter um, and that's fair yeah. totally not like, really but okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. you can it's fair meaning no, but, you get but, to have your opinion it may be fair but what i think the book shows is that th there's a real vulnerability in the book but that was what i thought was so interesting i want you to dilate on sort of identity 
on match is it matchmaking match, match fit or match quality match fit and then and forgiveness. then self forgiveness what was um, so you th- these three concepts came to you from a no it was it's it showed up in the work of George Valley and watching the Harvard adult development studies like in psychology they talk about moderators moderators is a fancy word for an if then condition yeah and some of the early work came out of like goal theory and the science of goal directed behavior and things like that they started to find moderators and they go like this because you have more. a you have yeah you have dust i mean you have not lint it would have bugged the shit it's, out of me Keep it going. would have looked really good on Keep camera going. yeah though. exactly he's got this lint sexy on thing going off his neck taking off his shirt excellent right, um, go on that was i saying you were saying that i said the three stages ah, so came from yeah so the crisis of identity eric erickson identified that way way back he thought it was a crisis that sort of was 12 to 18 and you'd have to solve it by 18. And what the, the study showed is that, no, it actually stretches on to longer. But if you don't solve it by the time you're 30, you start to have problems because by 40, you need match fit, right? And if you don't know who you are, how the fuck do you figure out what the match is between who you are and how you live in this world? Which is the next thing you have to But is identity identifying what you want? No, identity is who are you? What, who are you as a person? The crisis Any, of identity. Like, how, what does that mean? Where to place how, your energy? No, however you identify as an individual. And everybody has different labels. Often by 30, it's a role. I am a father. I Got am it. a mother. I am a school teacher. I am a, like, it, right, it's what right, it's right. those sorts of things. But it can be, you want to be clear on your sexuality. You want to be clear on all those big things, if you can be, right? Yeah. And it's mostly so you can get match fit and figure out, like, how do I live in the world? And it seems like... The forgiveness thing is interesting, and but it seems like it's what unlocks, first of all, empathy and wisdom. And one of the reasons, let's, so wisdom, which is a specific neurobiological trait, like certain areas of the brain are involved in it, and it codes for certain things, and expertise are the two things that are neuro, big words, neuroprotective against cognitive decline. Cognitive decline means slowing down of cognitive function. It becomes cognitive decline once it's, I think it's below 50% of what you normal function and leads to dementia and Alzheimer's. And when they autopsy brains afterwards, they can find people with brains that are filled with plaques and tangles, all the signs of Alzheimer's, but they showed none of the symptoms. And it's always because they've got lifelong hobbies uh, or passions. learnings, basically, yeah. right? And it's the wisdom and the expertise that comes off of it because they form big neural nets in the brain. And usually if you get Alzheimer's dementia, it's like individual spots that tend to erode. So you have these big neural nets, they're protective and they're redundant against cognitive decline. Yeah, you um, use the expression, use it or lose it a lot. It's, well, the old idea on aging, right? And it's the one I grew up with, it's probably the one you Me grew too. up with, yeah. which is like the long, slow rot theory, right? Our mental and physical skills decline over time. There's nothing we can do to stop the slide. To be honest with you, I. Uh, until I read this book, the value of this book, I swear to God, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but like, I, I think about my age all the time and I fight it and I work out and I'm always busy, but just hearing what's possible based on the research you did just was like, I was like, kind of, it's kind of, it was amazing because every, I mean, everything that they used to think declined over time, we now know it's a use or lose of skill. It doesn't change the fact like you're, strength fibers, strength muscles, start declining at 50, and they're going to keep going. They are going to decline. It's just that if trained properly, the remaining fibers more than compensate mostly for what is lost. And you can even start to gain skill. 
So, and it's like across the boards, VO2 max, which was something that we were, every stamina goes over 40, you're fucked, forget about it. And now they're measuring the VO2 max of like 85 year old octogenarian triathletes and they've got the VO2 max of like 35 year old and 40. That was fascinating in the book. I freaked out when I heard that because I had, I bought into the fact, I ride that aerodyne bike, <laughs> it's such a nightmare. But I was like, well, I got to just hold on to my VO2 max, but you can actually... You can extend it. That's crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of this stuff that you actually can extend. And some of it's weird. Like there's weird facts like, so if you want real neural net, new networks, right? You want memory protection and things like that. Exercise obviously matters hugely, which yeah. is one of the reasons this is so important. But it's not just exercise, it's balance and coordination agility and coordination changing movement certain things produce way more neurogenesis the birth of new neurons than other stuff so it's getting very specific which is really it's not just use it or lose it was big enough news right yeah, but yeah. the fact that we're now there's a recipe in a sense um which is really kind of amazing so then you've got identity you've got matchmaking a match fit, and then you self forgiveness, and then self forgiveness, self forgiveness of others, my, that, forgiveness of others and self, and it's because we get access to new levels of wisdom and empathy. But if you can't forgive people, it the parts of our brain. So wisdom, empathy, all this comes out of a part in our brain called the temporal parietal junction. It's basically right here, and it's the part of your brain that does perspective taking. So when you see things from another's perspective, or when you have an out of body experience, which is a right? You're physically floating above your body. It's also a radically different shift in perspective. It's the same part of the brain going haywire in an out-of-body experience. Maybe haywire is a strong term, but having a weird surge. But it's this portion of your brain that seems to be where wisdom and empathy develop and something about, they don't quite know why yet, but something about forgiveness. If you don't get through that gateway, if you can't put this shit down, it seems to block some of the empathy. And the I love that, that you're on. talking about forgiveness. And there's, you're breaking it down scientifically. The Christians have been saying this, but right? It's like it, religion has been, I can just see all the religious people going, we've been fucking saying it for 2,500 years, bro. So do you find as you get older that the, do you find yourself getting more curious about the ancient mythologies, the religions that, that are ever present in our lives? Or are you still an avowed atheist? Never been an avowed atheist. I like that. I see I'm how a I fed very, you that. Yeah, I'm a very strong ag agnostic. And I actually think I don't get atheists because to me it's a belief like any other belief. And I'm a strong agnostic because I don't know. Right. Like the universe is just bigger than I can comprehend. Correct. And the amount of arrogance it takes to say, oh, I know this for sure. Yeah. I'm amazed by, like, wherever you, uh, like, religious, atheist, like, wherever you fall, I'm just amazed by your certainty. Like, how That's the, how I feel. Okay? I'm, always, I'm not about to like, be like, bullshit, and I get there, and God's like, now you want to be my friend? You know what I mean? I'm, I don't know, man. I, I'm the same way. I just, I, I would never presume to to be that sure. About, yeah, about, I, like, about anything. Rationality. What, what I really love, though, is just, I think you, it feels like you're on the forefront of, this sort of idea of cognitive aging and peak performance aging. And so I love, so I love these things, but let, talk a little bit about, cause I'm a huge believer in this too, like just incremental improvements. So like tiny little, like instead of looking at just fucking one step at a time, instead of looking at the top of the mountain, right? It's just, so we have to talk a little bit about flow. Yes. For this to make sense. Flow, which is what at the heart of all of my work, if you are listening and don't, know what flow is it's an optimal state of 
consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best, right? Those in the zone moments, you get so focused on everything you're doing that everything else vanishes. You're not and, thinking. Right. So flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. So if you want more flow and all the benefits that come with it, the triggers are your toolkit. One of the most famous is what's known as the challenge skills balance. I don't care. Um, baby. <laughs> And the challenge skills balance, so flow follows focus. It only shows up when all our retention is on the here and now. And we pay the most attention to the task at hand, to the here and now, when the challenge that we're facing slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch but not snap. So next step, and then we'll get to the one inch at a time idea, is that a bunch of years ago, the godfather of flow psychology, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, sitting down with a Google mathematician, and they tried to put a number. Can we put a rate, an actual number, on the difference between challenge and skills? And they did a back-of-the-envelope calculation, and they came up with 4%. wasn't a real number. It was a metaphor. 4%. 4%, okay. meaning we pay the most attention to the task at hand yeah. when the challenge of the task is 4% greater than the skills we okay. bring to it. So you're stretching but not snapping. Right. So allostatic overload or allostatic load is essentially all the bad shit that's ever happened in your life, all the tragic, emotional, physical, otherwise, it's the residual load. Right, and it builds up in our nervous system, and it's called allostatic load or allostatic overload. It's often talked about in the around burnout. You hear it a lot when they talk about burnout. But we started to realize is that four percent challenge skills sweet spot because of allostatic overload is shrunken in older adults. They don't even know. So you still feel like the athlete you were in your twenties, yeah. and you may have the physical skills to be that person, but the amount of fear has gone up so much and you haven't noticed. And so I stopped and I was like, okay, I think that's probably true with me because I've broken so many bones and I really didn't want to get injured, which is a strange thing to say. I'm going to teach myself how to park ski and I don't want to get injured. Yeah. But uh, that was like the craziest shit you could choose. You could possibly do. But the idea was let's start with an existing motor pattern, something I can do hundred percent of the time with zero fear and hundred percent success rate or 95% success rate. And build one inch at a time. And you're Let's building, just, are you building neural, like, is it like the myelin sheath? Is it? I want it, well, first I wanted repetition. the new, I wanted the new motor pattern. Yeah. And it will, I mean, so everything the, is that way, boxing, jujitsu, wrestling, you drill the same move over and over. You, yeah, you want the same, yeah, and then you want, so I took a, I took what is known as, I took a deliberate play approach, which is different than deliberate practice is Anders Eric do the same thing over and over again, get yeah. your 10,000 hours, right? With slight improvement. Repetition without repetition, deliberate play is do exactly what you did before, but just improv a tiny little bit on top of it, right? So it'd be the difference in, in MMA of literally like, I'm putting my weight in my right hip versus my left hip, right, for this move. Something really micro like that. That's how I was playing with it. And it, we just got good results right out of the gate. You like good results in, in getting meaning, in the flow right away? Well, it wasn't even so much flow. Would, yes, I, there was a lot of flow, but no, I was actually making progress. Yeah. I mean, that like I knew there were going to be a couple tricks where like the first time I threw a 180, you're going to have to land backwards, right? I was going to have to like get over it and just, I'm going to fi have to figure nuts. out how to land backwards. I just think about my knees breaking. Um, it's what was surpri so surprising to me is how... I actually understood, like, as soon as I landed backwards, my body knew what to do. Yeah. Like, it was a very, it was a very weird thing because I was so terrified of it. And, like, it was, my body actually knew what to do. And that was, it was a lot of stuff like that along the way where, like, I'd have to push, but 
I was doing it in such a way that like what I was finding on the other side of the pushing, which was new for me, was something I could build upon rather than something like, oh, wow, that's too hard. It's unattainable. I can work with this. And that was the fun of it. And you may know this is to suddenly find yourself at 53 years old getting better at a sport like park skiing was nuts. Like it was, the, it was so, that was, that's not supposed to belong to 50. Well, that was, so that, but that was the, the real thing that was interesting is that was really where the book, one of the places the book started is there was all these theories out of network neuroscience, neural dynamics, but how the network level of the brain works, embodied cognition, which is basically the science of like, Hey, we're not just heads on sticks. Our brains are actually embedded in the body, in our bodies. Right. And flow science that said, hey, wait a minute, we old dogs should be able to learn new tricks. Like all this idea that old dogs can't learn new tricks. It's like I'm reading theory after theory and it's all saying this. If you put these things together, this should work. And park screen was a great test because it's there are 12 or 13, 14 different reasons that it's biologically supposed to be impossible for anybody over the age of 35 or 40 to learn how to park ski. Right. And all Until the, Stephen Kotler came along. <laughs> it was a bunch of scientists in labs all over the world who did the actual, like... They weren't doing 180s and 360s. They did not Where's put it camera? to the test. Yes, it, Don't it be modest. It annoys me. Oh, Just sorry. fucking brag. They're gone. No, I hear you. But still, you still had to put it to the test. I know. I hear you. I had to cut you off because I know all the science. But you were following that maniac. No, but... Like when you're skiing, when you're park skiing, it's kind of hard not to do it full. It's kind of hard not. You got to get a certain no, amount of speed you, you, to jump. Yeah, that was you know well. That I mean? was yeah. That was the, well, when Ryan he told you to jump react. and you saw all the rocks below you, like ah! just fucking do it, bro. Just jump. some of those things. Like if you chicken out last minute, it's no, you it's don't. Problematic. You, you actually can't. Yeah, right. you have to. You do have to. And a lot of those things you do have to commit. And the one thing that I've definitely learned, and I've learned it again. Coming back into this season, it's day six of the season. You have to relearn your tricks and you fool yourself. I've been fooling myself trying to relearn them slowly. You know what happens when you try to relearn a park trick slowly? You fall down. (laughs) Yeah. You fall down and it freaking hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, park skiing doesn't care. I also felt like when I read (laughs) the book, I was like, like, look, man, it's all good you did this and I love the book. And, but at the same time, like that was then it's not something you got to just keep doing it it's not like you can take a year off and come back you definitely have to keep doing well no it's it's, this is the thing i learned years ago i when i was learning how to rock climb when i was learning how to surf it's the same thing in all action sports for me this may not be for other people i've been around phenomenal athletes who can like show up once a week or twice a week and make progress not me yeah i gotta show up four times a week and work like two to four hours otherwise i'm going backwards yeah Right, that's just who I am, so I like... Yeah, yeah, but uh, that's the other thing I appreciated about the book, very vulnerable. I wonder if there's any escape. It's constant work, no matter what you're doing, right? I think, well, over 50, it definitely appears that if you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. Thank you for tuning in to Flow Research Collective Radio. Please pardon the brief interruption. Got a question for you. Do you have great ideas and big goals? My assumption is you have more skills than most knowledge workers. You're paid well to use your brain and you've reached this level in your career by being uncommonly effective at what you do. But maybe something's changed. You're typically relentless, but fatigue has started to slow you down. You used to be crystal clear on your priorities, but mounting responsibilities have started to blur your vision. Now on your best days, you can focus for hours on end on the most critical tasks and blaze through a massive workload with ease. But perhaps you're inconsistent. 
Some days you can barely focus for more than a few minutes before your attention gets yanked elsewhere. People rely on you, so you're constantly reeled into conversations, task switching, and multitasking. Or perhaps you've got no trouble keeping focus. You can consistently execute on your highest priorities, and you're fully able to manage your time wisely. But you know that something is missing. You're looking for a way to perform at your absolute best, and not just some of the time, but all of the time. On your best days, you can get 10 times more work done in half the time, and it feels nearly effortless, and it's enjoyable, and it's energizing. At the end of a 10 out of 10 day, you hit the pillow that night feeling unstoppable. Now this level of extreme accomplishment is its own reward, but you get the external rewards too, by excelling in your profession and your craft. Now with 10 out of 10 days, you exceed your own expectations and surprise yourself with what you're capable of. And if you've ever suspected there's a way to operate at a 10 out of 10 level every day, you're right, there is. And we're going to show you exactly how to access Apex performance like this at will, without fail. To train with us at the Flow Research Collective, go to getmoreflow.com. That's getmoreflow.com. All the best. Yeah, that. but I loved, what I loved is your examples, right? So I went to an exhibit, a Picasso exhibit, and he was 90 years old. The dude was painting on a level as high as he was when he was 40. Then you use Stradivarius as an example. That, that, that was, yeah, that was one of the, mis- right, that was where one of the places the book came from. Like the, the way yeah. it was? Is that where you started? No, I, so I started a whole bunch of different places. I'll give you an order. So let me tell you the Stradivarius thing. The Stradivarius thing, this was very early on. Before, long before it was a book, but I was, I wanted to write a novel. It had been a long time since I wrote, my first book was a novel and I wrote a couple recently, but it, this was in, in a long gap and I was like, oh, I'll write a book. And I wanted to, I always wanted to write a book about a cat burglar and there, it was a, for flow reasons. There's this, there's a bunch of Chicks Let Me High's early work on juvenile delinquency. And the argument is that a lot of the things juvenile delinquents, quote unquote, do, graffiti, fighting, petty theft, they're doing to regulate their nervous system and try to drive themselves into flow. Ooh. And it's about flow seeking, wow. not moral transgression. Juice. And, exactly. And so, so I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to make a cat burglar who's like the grown up version of one of these flow kids, juvenile delinquents. And that was, and I was like, okay, well, my cat burglar, what's she going to steal? I want something cool. And I was like, after thinking about it for a while, I settled on rare musical instruments. Next question. Who, what are the most expensive musical instruments in history, right? And I, and I start looking into this, and I realize that Stradivarius, one guy in the 1600s, has built half of the most valuable musical instruments in history, which is bizarre. So bizarre. That'd be like one painter has painted half of the most... Like, it doesn't even make any sense. After I read the, your book, I kind of did a little research. Yeah, you get in line. He's obsessed like, about fucking the glue. And the kind of glue he used. Was, oh, and the strings too. I mean, the whole it was thing, amazing. Dude. Yeah, but yeah. so I'm reading about Stradivarius, and I realized that he had made. So this is I still believe the long slow rot theory of aging at this point, and it's I'm reading whatever I was reading, and said he made two of his most famous violins or musical instruments when he was 92 years old, and I went, wait a minute, if this is true, yeah. everything I know about aging has to be wrong because there's no way a 92 year old man with cognitive decline, with lack of motor skills and motor coordination, all the things that are supposed to go away, you can't build priceless violins, right? It doesn't make any sense. So that was one of the... By hand. Yeah, yeah, that was. there were a bunch of... A lot of the puzzle pieces... So my wife and I run and did for a very long time an animal sanctuary. We do hospice care. So we've had 700 hospice cases have passed through our lives and we have a... There's a movement in canine welfare to double canine lifespan 
and there's really high tech approaches and there's low tech and we're in the middle. We do some flow science stuff, some evolutionary psychology stuff and some nutrition stuff, but we get amazing results. Like we'll get dogs, they'll come from vets and the vet will be like, don't get very attached. This dog's got a month to, to live and we'll sort of institute our healing protocol and we'll get five or six more years of life out of wow. these animals. And these aren't, we take our dogs into the backcountry off leash every day. So they'll do five, <laughs> seven miles up and down mountains when they're supposed to be dead in a month. And so we were seeing this hundreds of dogs, not just a couple, hundreds and hundreds of dogs over, over 20 years at this point. So I knew one, something was I knew up. something was wrong. I was like, this doesn't like, whatever they're saying about aging, like we're getting results that don't even make any sense. And we're not doing, like we've increased the quality of their food and we've matched their diet to what the sort of dogs evolved to eat. But we've just created, an all we did was create an environment very similar to what dogs evolved in. And that's most of what we did. And suddenly they just blossomed. So I knew something was wonky because that didn't make any sense. Yeah. The Stradivarius thing was another whole. And then what really changed for me, where, so the book was, percolating, but it was the last conversation I had with me. I took something high before he died. You actually had a conversation with Yeah, him. we've known each other for, for a while, but I had, so you get a kick out of this, a funny story. Um, one, I, I knew he'd had a stroke, and I hadn't talked to him, but and I knew he was starting to improve, but I wanted to check in on him. It had been a bunch of years since I'd talked to him, and they had just translated they published a couple new flow textbooks and in doing so they translated a bunch of old interviews with chicks at me i that were in italian into english and i'm reading these interviews and he's always been an avid outdoors guy right um and he's, his students tell stories about how he would come to class with like black eyes and like things we'd go into the back country and things would happen and he worked on rock climbers early on, talked some of the early flow research was done on rock climbers. But I'm reading these interviews and he's like name dropping 1960s era Yosemite Valley climbers, like hardcore people. And I'm like, there's no way he would have known these people if he wasn't really serious about this stuff. And I just had this, it was a really weird, I had this weird idea. So I called him, I was like, he answers the phone. And uh, I was like, Mike, you got to tell me, I've been reading all your old stuff, and I know you in your TED Talk, you say that you first stumbled onto flow in the concentration camps, and then you did all this research on artists. But tell me the truth. You were an action sport athlete. You were getting into flow in the mountains as a rock climber, as a mountaineer, and you didn't know how to talk about that because that was even me writing about action sports in the early thousands was hard enough trying to do it in the 60s when he was writing beyond yeah. right you could yeah, never it do it like, it sounded like almost like magic right he can he used conductors painters rock climbers and surgeons, surgeons. yeah and and talked about how they get it was the, yeah it was how they it, get it, into it, flow. it started i mean his famous one is artists right like he yeah. started with artists he was yeah that's right painters that's painters right. he was at the yeah. university of chicago and he was trying to figure out like why they were so invested in these paintings and the minute they were done, they didn't care about the work yeah, anywhere. They put it on the side. It was just the paints. It was just stirring. about, it was just about the painting. It wasn't about the fame, the success, all the things that people thought it was going to be about. It was but just about the art. Continue what you were saying because I interrupted. So anyways, because you said, so you I called him up to ask and asked him this ridiculous question, right? Yeah. Like, and there's this huge pause, 30 seconds, a minute and a half, two minutes. And I'm like, holy shit. I've like, I've just mortally offended the Godfather yeah. of Lois. I got like, whoa, oh, shit. And finally, he, his voice was really deep. And he was like, oh, Stephen, you got to be careful. Translation. 
Well, and I'm thinking to myself, oh shit, the stroke got into his brain. Like he lost the threat. And I, so I sit there and I didn't know what to do. And after about a minute, I'm like, okay, I just got to, there's nothing to do. I was like, Mike, what do I have to be careful about? And he's like, you got to be careful. You do something in your entire life with flow. You get to be my age. Forget about climbing mountains. Sometimes you can't even get out of bed. You got to have a backup plan. You got to be careful. And I went, oh crap, this is the godfather of flow studies. It wasn't even like, it wasn't. It so was he one, was a rock climber? It was one, yeah, he was a mountaineer and a rock climber and he did it his whole life for flow. And then he got to a point where he could no longer do it. Do it. And he, so he tells me to have a backup plan. And I'll get to why park skiing. A, a backup plan to get back into flow? Meaning as back. you're going to age, have a backup plan for how you get into flow. Yeah, because if you're locked out, and at that point, so I know, why would I learn to park ski? What Skiing was always my what I did for flow. Yeah. But I was a big mountain skier, which means the only way I'm getting into flow is doing 60 miles an hour down something very steep and really dangerous. And that's not super user friendly in your 80s and so i figured if i could learn to park ski and i could creatively interpret the mountain yeah getting to intermediate was going to be dangerous and i knew that but i knew what once i got to intermediate i didn't want i didn't if i get to expert great whatever but if i get to intermediate there was going to be a million more ways i could get into flow much more safely yeah on a mountain yeah. than just like diving down chutes at 70 miles an hour, right? And that, so I was like, okay, that's maybe my total backup plan, but this is where I'm starting. And so that was the final, like, there was a bunch of other stuff going on, but that was the catalyst when I was like, okay, yeah. I, that's why I feel so incredibly lucky to be a stand-up comic, because flow for me has been probably, I didn't really think about it deeply, but I remember doing a show in Sacramento, and I was just... I was firing on all cylinders. It was just like one of those shows because I was about to, sh to drop my special. So I had everything dialed in. And I remember I didn't have to think about anything I was saying. I didn't even have to think about the jokes. I swear to God, I was playing the audience the way you play an instrument. So you play it like the way you play. What is that? What's this thing? Accordion? Yeah, the fucking accordion. The, the, that instrument. Not a and, crime. No, nah, I was going to say. But th when you play that or you play an instrument or, or read an instrument, you're blowing, you're regulating your breath, right? You're pulling back. Your I swear to God, man, I was like, I, I was like this side of the audience, they're laughing too hard. They're going to get exhausted. So I pull air back there and, that, and I go, that guy, th this part of the audience looks a little bit, I've been directing too much attention. Let me hit these guys. That guy's macho. I could do that. I was like, that guy's macho. He's not giving me much. So let me give him an attention because he's going to say something. He's going to, I was able to see every fucking person in that audience. I swear to God. And I started playing them. I was like, this side now looks like they're a little tired. So let me give them energy. Let me give you guys energy now. And let me pull energy back from you. So it was almost like I was playing. And the best way to describe it, I felt like I was playing the entire audience. Like, a, like woo, more air, pull air back here. And I didn't have to think of anything. But I've had so many of those experiences where you literally are not thinking about anything other than you just let it take over. You go because it's exactly where I'm supposed to be. It's what I was born for. And that's probably why nothing else is interesting to me. Like, like you want to go rock climbing? Cool. Yeah. You want to go hunting? Yeah, we'll go hunting. You want to go? Like, you know, okay. The only thing that came close was maybe boxing because I would always get nervous because I got to fight some fucking young dude who's going to hit me in the face and I'm going to be dizzy for the next. But even that, everything was pretty much, everything pales in comparison. And I 
didn't really think about why. I always thought it's just what I'm made to do and stuff. No, and I have these lofty ideas of what an artist is, an original self-expression. But I think if I'm really honest with myself, it's probably because my brain shuts off and or maybe it turns on. But I feel as honest as I ever had. I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be and I don't have to think about anything. It's where I'm truly, maybe Schiller once said, man's never more himself than when at play which is that thing you would do for its own sake. You would do it whether you got paid for it or not. And I There's just... Two I things. One, I was listening to you talking, and it reminds Tom Waits once said, songs are really fun things to do with air. Right. But that's yes. besides the point. What I was actually thinking is, because right and wrong, meaning you were making fun of yourself for having a... a definition of an artist that you were up on stage fulfilling and what I want to say is that I think the point of flow is it it matches our values and our strengths and things like that so if you like one of the reasons you find so much flow on stage is also because you have these values that you're living into when you're on stage yeah yes I, I actually think like the best way to get to know yourself is to get really good at something I believe that. I agree with that. And I also think that my God is honesty, truth. Like you spend a lot of your life lying to yourself. You spend a lot of your life pretending to be somebody you're not, right? I don't know if that's such a bad thing. I think men I can speak for, most of us are planning our escape. Most men, there's some men that just dull that and they fucking smoke weed and they just stare at stupor and play video games all day. But for the most part, all of us are trying to get out of where we are right now and get somewhere <laughs> better, right? It really is like being in jail in one way or another. But I think that for me, the battle is always about original self-expression, meaning I have to surprise myself and meaning I have to be original and, and do something that I didn't know I had in me. And that means never getting too comfortable. I can't just keep telling the same fucking jokes, man. And that also means I've got to <clears throat> really key in to what I honestly revere, what I am honestly afraid of, what I'm honestly angry about and let me forgive. I really thought a lot about this with this book. I don't think there's any growth without forgiveness. And I, I just can't believe that a guy like yourself who's a scientist essentially or somebody who's studying flow from such a mathematical perspective brought that shit into the book because I think it's the most important aspect of the book and I never thought about it until I read it. I was like, you can't move unless you forgive those that did you wrong. And forgive yourself for all your, I don't know, maybe who you were pretending to be for the longest time. I don't know. I, I, don't, know, I don't know why I, I, went I definitely, off on I mean, I'm, I always say that the, with books, the secret to a great book is you have to tell the truth, tell the truth. And the third, like, it's, you got to go all the way in. Um, yeah, it was gutsy. You did it. Because it could have been. It's funny because it, when I was doing it, it just felt organic. Like if you would have pointed it out and been like, you're doing this. I wouldn't this, have, because right? it would have fucked yeah, you. Because you would have gotten in your head. Yeah, it would have gotten in my head. I don't know. I, too much. Now, I, you shouldn't even hear this. I shouldn't even tell you this because I don't want to fuck you up for your next book. Seriously, <laughs> like I'm very guarded of people's talent because I don't want to be kissed. I don't want to be blowing smoke up your ass because well, you're going to aim for that again. But dude, I've learned the same lesson you've learned also, which is that like every one of my books, there's... A communication challenge is the thing I want to tell you, and there's a style challenge is how I want to tell it artfully. But there's always something hard that I have to learn. In our country, was nobody's the one thing that I'm really proud of is there aren't books 
that go day by it's the first book about applied peak performance that I think has ever been written because you can't very few writers are willing to like try to go day by day through something without like they're terrified it's going to be boring and I was too yeah. right like and it took a really long time right? how do you write a book about skiing that people who've never skied in their life are going to want to really read like all that stuff there were a bunch of writing challenges that scared the pants off me right going into it going I wow I don't know if like this is going to work at all and this was of the books that I've written this was the one I was almost a year in before I was like oh yeah this might work like I had been really, working, yeah, I had it been took you a at, year. I had been working on it for no, almost, what an act of faith almost that is. a year. That's an act. When I finally was like, oh yeah, okay, now I'm seeing it start to work. Wow, it was a tricky. Yeah, one. Yeah, by the way, I one. can't believe I didn't mention enough of that. The book, the new book of your fourteen, is Nar Country. And if you read Art of Impossible or Abundance, or you know, all of them have a lot to say and are just full of like what's possible in your life, but. I just, th this in particular coming maybe for me at 55 selfishly was just a door opener. I was just like, this is just so interesting to me. Because oh, I'm you, glad. You, then my work here is done. Yeah, dude, you literally put yourself, you put yourself, you were guinea pig. And it could have gone south. Oh, yeah, that, that, no, that was I one mean, of them. When oh, my I was, God. I was, so I'll tell, let me. Yeah, tell the story. The story. So. We were skiing at Kirkwood, and we were on a skiing a feature called Lower Norm's Nose, and Lower um, Norm's, Norm's Nose. Norm, it's a giant nose that protrudes out of the mountain, right? And there shoots all over it. And we had been working our way in, and Ryan had tried to ski this really aggressive shoot, and it had slid. So he skied it, but he stayed right above, right ahead of the snow, and barely made it out alive. And I was, and it, but it slid, all the snow was gone from the rock now, and there was no way to go back. So I still had to go deeper onto the face. And I got to like the top of this chute. I was sideways into it. And the chute was like 15 feet below me. I'm on a side of a right rock wall. And as soon as I skied up onto it, the same thing happened again. The snow started to slide. And there was no, like, I had to get into that chute. So, like, there was no choice. I w it was it was go. You had to jump. You have to jump and, and land and turn. That's so. And exciting. I had to do. And it was one of the crazier things I've had to do because it was jump, land, turn, and you're. It's like five feet wide. Like it's landing in a five foot slot. And the moment I landed down below, Ryan, my ski partner, I see him start to like raise his arms in victory, and then his eyes went really wide, and I saw it. And then there's suddenly there's a voice behind my left ear in a voice like there shouldn't be a voice there right like at all no voice should, should be, be there right now miles an hour. Right. it was a i as you pointed out earlier i weigh a buck 50 sopping wet this was like a 210 220 pound six foot two guy Disaster. entered the shoot at the same time i leaped off the wall he hit turn of velocity right as he impacted me so we start we're mashed together, yeah. like literally like married. almost You're face married. to face, yeah. right? And we're flipping down a five foot wide corridor between lava walk walls, and I can see the lava rock flipping past my eyes. Fuck and I'm th my brain is literally like the chances that two entangled skiers could tomahawk down a lava without dying here are almost minuscule. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. yeah, thanks, buddy. Yeah. Thank you very much. Like I love how it ended too. He goes, You okay? 
Yeah, you all right? <laughs> First of all, I think the dude had lost. Like he knew he was super at fault. I think he like yeah. knew. Like he Let's was get like, out of here. See you later. You drop something. Sorry. You're Sorry alive. About okay, your, bye. Sorry about your life. Sorry about your spine. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about the fact that your yeah, we, we, chest contusion. No, he managed to almost completely sever my left rotator cuff. God. We didn't even know it until the end of the season when I actually, like I went to go get my knees looked at and I was like, my left shoulder has been a little weird since that accident. Will you take a look at it? It was like, it's hanging on by a, like a single wow. Did you do operation or, or stem no, cells? No, I did, uh, I did exosomes and stem cells and exosomes. And my wife has a, a torn rotator cuff. And she, no, I want to. I've done, so I've done with torn rotator cuffs, I've had five of them. I've done Two surgeries, which are the most miserable, awful things ever, they and they suck. take a year and a half to heal, and they're shitty. They say six um, weeks. That's all bullshit. I love it. Yeah. PRP, yep. which if it'll work, doesn't work for everybody, did it's amazing for me. I fixed both rotator cuffs on either side very quick. PRP, and then with exosomes. What are like, exosomes? They're what stem so stem okay. cells, which were the big thing in regenerative medicine. The one of the problems with there's all kinds of health related this could cause cancer type of maybe issues but the biggest problem with stem cells were they would inject them into people into like the wound site and they would leave they'd stick around for like two or three days and then they'd be gone and what they started to realize is the things you want are what the stem cells actually secrete which are exosomes and their their wound healing or healing properties or the recruit other cells that will heal properties and i think i treated the rotator cuff with one round of exosomes in, out, and done, and I've not had any problems with it. PRP, I had to do two rounds, but I think with the shoulder, I literally did one round. The, that was one of the things that, that this is not a book about regenerative medicine. That's not really my field. I don't do longevity science. I don't do regenerative medicine. You and I share similar skepticism. Nobody around, gets out of this thing alive. Around it. That yeah. said, I have been playing with regenerative medicine now experimentally on myself as a guinea pig since 2000 and it was a joke until like prp showed up in around 2012 13 and started to get good and that was like second round of and now it's a third level of regenerative medicine and i still for a lot of the diseases a lot of the functional medical stuff i still think it's crap i don't i'm not but for orthopedic stuff i have torn this i have broken this i have damaged this it's starting to get very good that's um, that's great to hear so let's conclude this you do you have a philosophy on nutrition yes you do you're such a walking dichotomy i'm not you no no I, my philosophy on crazy. nutrition was i don't have a philosophy on nutrition like literally my feeling on nutrition is that. this one i love that they, we're very clear on this there is no one diet that will work for everyone Two, let me tell you a funny story because the nutrition crowd loves flow stuff, right? Yeah. They love, and there's never, ever, we, flow is a high energy state. So you would presume you need high quality food to produce that energy and lots of hydration. And that's what we tell people. And that's what I try to live by and et cetera, et cetera. True story. I wanted to know at a personal level, if there was any relationship between what I ate before I went skiing and getting into flow. So I did a 10-year study on myself. What did I eat before, before I went skiing? Did I get into flow? How deep of a flow state after a decade? The only correlation I found is on the days that I couldn't 
didn't have time, was running late, didn't make breakfast, didn't like eat at home. And I stopped at a gas station and most of the time bought like truck store donuts, right? That's when I got into the most flow. So after 10 years of trying to find this nutrition correlate that blah, 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 no, actually like cheap hostess donuts yeah. from the fucking gas Cause station. Because I'm says, skinny and I burn a lot of also, energy. Also, nothing says I don't give a fuck like hostess donuts. donuts. And part of getting in flow is saying, I don't give a fuck. Let's go. There are rocks down there, but I'm taking the I'm drunk. taking it anyways. I'm going to end this with this. I compliment you with this because a lot of guys, I've read and interviewed a lot of authors who have written a lot of books and on subjects like this and others. And one of the things that I always find is that they didn't live it. They just read about it. And I don't think you can really learn life by just reading about it and hearing about it. And you went out and did it. Yeah, you got to do both. Yeah, it's like Goethe read Newton's treatise on light. He read his 1,400-page volume on the properties of light. This is Goethe who wrote Faust, etc. And Goethe said... By the way, Goethe actually coined the word for flow. The first time flow is used in Western languages is Goethe, and the word is Rausch which is overflowing joy. And Goethe was trying to figure out the like Bacchanese Dionysian passion at Oktoberfest at German beer festivals yeah. when everybody got like swept up in yeah. the moment. They called that Rausch. And it was the first showing up of flow. And when Nietzsche, who was the first person to actually work on flow, he was working on Rausch. He was working on a I Goethe. Fucking, talk about full circle. So then this story is very apropos and appropriate. And he said... I read that miserable treatise on light <laughs> and all, you know, as a father of science. I read I 1,400 pages about the properties of light, and yet he told me nothing and taught me nothing about beauty, which is the whole point of learning about light, because the world is made of beauty. And I think that was a classic example of somebody who's theoretical versus somebody who lives. What's the point of life if you can't I always see thought this was my advantage doing flow research is that like I'm, I know almost all the scientists in the flow world and I will tell you that the ones who got farther than most were all athletes. Yeah. Arne Dietrich was a marathon runner. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was a rock climber and a mountaineer. Right? Like the people who actually advance flow science Come into contact with objective reality. You got to feel the ground under you. It's helpful. I, I find it helpful. Fucking A. Thanks, Stephen Calder, for coming out here. This was awesome. Thank you, Brian. Hey, it's Joshua with the production team. Now, your time is priceless, and in terms of dollars and cents, it's valuable. Whether you're an entrepreneur, executive, or a manager, you're paid well. But when you're short on time, you end up in a tailspin. Now, if you want to get more out of less time, just go to getmoreflow.com. We'll show you how. Because you know that when you manage your time well, you can move mountains. But your time is like sand, slipping between your fingers. Your to-do list grows, but time doesn't slow. You'd think that with less time, you'd work harder or smarter, but a scarcity of seconds makes you prone to procrastinate, which makes things worse. But you can end this time trouble right now. Here's how. Make more out of less through flow. You don't actually need more time. You already have enough. What it takes is switching to a higher gear of performance to get more out of that time. Now here at the Flow Research Collective, we study the human nervous system when it's functioning at its absolute best. There's a peak state you can tap into with reliability. It's called flow or being in the zone. It's an optimal state of consciousness where you feel your best and perform your best. And in it, time seems to slow down. Now, if you want to access flow consistently and reliably, just go to getmoreflow.com. Our protocols come from research out of Harvard, DARPA, and Stanford, and others. Our founder, Stephen Kotler's work, has been praised by the likes of Elon Musk, 
Bill Clinton, and Vishen Lakhiani. We draw from over 25 years of flow science to train a wide range of peak performers from Navy SEALs to Fortune 100 executives. Because our training is grounded in neurobiology, it works for everyone. So if you're interested, just go to getmoreflow.com for all the details. That's getmoreflow.com. All the best. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.